0: Hey, would you stand as we get ready to read God's Word? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 2 and 3, and uh, we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. Uh, So this is Paul's, uh, not really instructions, but uh, this is Paul kind of helping us to understand, hey, this is some things that we're going to see out of our life for those of us who are believers. We're talking today about how the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. The Bible says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is clear. God, your word is a guide. And God, your word reveals the heart of the Father to us. We love you so much. In Jesus' awesome name, we also pray, Father, for pastor. God, we pray that you would strengthen him today as he speaks two more times in churches in Mexico. God, we are hearing reports of so many people who've never stepped foot in a gospel preaching church. God, are hearing your message and coming to the saving knowledge of Christ, and we're so honored for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Pastor sent his love to you today. He texted me and said, Hey, make sure to tell the people that I love them. I said, I already know that. I know your heart. I actually have that in my notes already to tell them that you love them. And so uh, he loves you. He does that every time he goes out of town. Make sure the people know that I love them. Well, hey, today we're going to continue our series on the core. Uh, this series has been a long series. We've had a couple breaks uh, during the series, but this series has included uh, the core values of the Grace Place. Uh, They've also included our core beliefs here at our church. Uh, In those beliefs, uh, our core beliefs regarding the Holy Spirit. And we talked one week about how the Holy Spirit's a person. We talked about how the Holy Spirit passes out gifts and how the Holy Spirit produces fruit. So we're in like a three-week mini-series in the big series uh, on the core this week. Last week, Pastor talked about love, joy, and peace, and this week, we're going to continue on. I want to make a couple statements about the fruits of the Spirit. First of all, we've got to understand that if we are biblically saved, we have been born again, meaning that we've been given a brand new spirit and we are alive in Christ. It is because of salvation, because we are a part of God through the saving work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Okay. Having the Holy Spirit in us at salvation is not the same thing as being baptized in this Holy Spirit. This is just what unifies us and creates unity between us and God at salvation. And the results of this unity are the nine fruits of the Spirit listed in the scripture we just read. I love the quote that Pastor gave last week. He said that the true mark of spiritual maturity is fruit, not gifts. You know, in Pentecostal churches, we we love so much and we glorify and we mystify the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit are amazing. But what Paul is drawing attention to is the fruits of the Spirit. They are the true mark of a believer. Now, the gifts are just gifts given to us. They're not based off of our spirituality. They're based on grace. The evidence of an apple tree is what? The evidence of a believer or somebody who has been saved by the grace of God is the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is necessary if God's kingdom is going to advance. And you're going to understand the power of that statement as we get to the end of the message. I want to say it again. The fruit of the Spirit is necessary if God's kingdom is going to advance. And Paul is actually really strong on this when he comes and he gives us this explanation on the fruits of the Spirit. And as we go into the book of Galatians, Paul is actually really strong in this entire book. If you have ever read the book of Galatians, you would understand this is a tough book. This is a hard book to understand. Paul is really strong in here. So I want us to understand a few things, because as I read Galatians uh, 5, 22, and 23, looking at the text, I went back and I read a bunch of stuff before that, so that we can have a clear perspective on what Paul is really getting at. Here's what Paul is really getting at. This entire book, Paul is making a dividing line between the law, the law, and between grace. That's what Paul's doing in this entire book. He's got a group of newly saved believers sitting in front of him, and they are mixing the Old Testament, they're mixing the Ten Commandments, they're mixing all of the laws of the Pharisee with this thing called grace. And Paul is saying, hey guys, you cannot mix the two. The two don't mix at all. As a matter of fact, this law over here shows us how broken and how incapable we are That's why I brought this thing called grace. So he's taking a a, a stake and he's growing a huge line right in between these two things. And so this is where we find ourselves when we come to Galatians chapter 5. And here's what Paul says to the people who are trying to mix the two things together. He says, in Galatians 5, 4, he says, If you're trying to make yourselves right with Christ by keeping the law, you, in fact... Cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Because the two don't mix. When you try to mix the two, you cut yourself off. As a matter of fact, in another part of Galatians, Paul actually says, if you try to keep one part of the law, then you're going to be held accountable to all of the law. Do any of you want to be held accountable to all of the law? Because I think it's pretty proven when we look at the Old Testament that it is absolutely impossible to be made right and to do right in light of the law. So Paul is so strong and he's contrasting and showing the difference between the law and between grace, between the fruit of the law. Do you hear me? The fruit of the law and the fruit of grace. Because the Galatians... they were trying to improve their human state and their human behavior by way of the law. And Paul is saying, I want you to know the fruit of trying to improve yourself and your human behavior by the law is death. And the fruit of trying to improve your human behavior and improve your human state, your state of humanity, the fruit... Of living by the way of grace is actually life. So here's what he says the fruit of the law produces. He says in Galatians 5.19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature and the fruit of the law, because the law brings death, here's what you can expect. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, and the list goes on and on. And then he says this towards the end. He says... Let me tell you again, as I have done before, anyone living that sort of life... Now, listen, as Christians, you think it's about all these sins. But Paul is saying, anybody who is living this sort of life in the law, trying to be made right, trying to do good with Christ, by the way of the law, it will produce death and you. And the production of death is this, sexual immorality impurity, lustful pleasures. Now, Paul's drawing this line between the law of death and the law of the Spirit. And he says, but those of you who are in Christ, here is what the Holy Spirit produces. Here's what death produces. Here's what the Holy Spirit produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's what the Holy Spirit produces today. What would Paul say today if he walked into our church, if he walked into the church today and he was trying to divide the line between law and grace for you and I? What would he say today? I would think that Paul might come to us today and he might say, Church, I need to draw the line again for you because I want you to understand that going to church is not the evidence of a true believer, I want you to know that lifting your hands higher than everybody else around you during worship is not the evidence of a true believer. I want you to understand that giving money every time the plate passes you is not the evidence of a believer. I want you to understand that being the top giver in missions at the grace place is not the evidence of the work of Christ in you. I might get in trouble with pastor on that one. What Paul is saying is, all of those things are exterior, flesh driven efforts. They're things, they're stuff. And what Paul is saying is, here's what he says. In Galatians chapter 3, he brings a, another really strong statement, and he might say that to you and I today. You foolish Galatians, you foolish church, who has bewitched you? Who has made you think that by going to church and that by giving your tithes and that by lifting your hands higher than everyone else in worship and that by worshiping longer than anyone else in worship and by praying louder than everybody else, who has bewitched you into making you think that that reflects Christ? Those things don't reflect Christ at all. Those show off your fleshly ability. I believe that Paul might say to us that all of those things that we just mentioned that you mistakenly think make you Christian, they are fleshly things. The same things that the Pharisees struggle with, they're just different in your culture today. Those reflect self, just like temple attendance reflected self, just like the sacrifices of idols reflected self, just like circumcision reflected self. Now, that one is so weird to me. I don't get that. I don't understand circumcision. I don't know who came up with that. That's just the craziest thing to me. And I don't know how they went about in conversations when they would gather together the Jews trying to figure out who was truly, purely a Jew. I mean, how awkward is that conversation? To talk about private things like that at a first meeting. Hey, brother, God bless you. I am a Jewish brother in Christ. Shalom. Are you really? Can you prove it? Okay. We better move on. Because that's not what we're here to talk about today. But I don't know how they went about figuring out whether they have the true mark or not. I'll let you think about that. But the true mark, Paul says to you and I, is not the exterior things. The true mark is the inner work of grace in you and I. And the fruit of the Spirit being revealed in us. Being revealed in you. It's not you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So as we talk about the next three fruit, fruits, we've got to understand this is a dividing line that is being drawn between these two different ways, the ways of the law and the ways of grace. Now, I'm not going to go in order. For those of you who are melancholies and you're waiting for me to go in the perfect order of what the scripture said, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, I'm going to go out of order. And if you know me, you know that's just what I do. I don't do things in order very often. So number one, goodness. Goodness. Somebody say goodness. So I went back and I looked at the original word goodness. It's a funky word. The original word goodness is agathosone. Agathosone. Now, if I said it wrong, who cares? I don't know anybody in here who really uh, can speak Greek, so just take my word for it. It has a two-part meaning. It means an inherent seed of good. A seed of good. It's dropped into something. It's an inherited. That thing was not good before it received the inherent seed of good. That word also speaking, is speaking towards our restored nature, our new nature in Christ. In other words, a seed was deposited in something that was not good, and now that seed has changed that thing that was not good that was producing death, and now it produces life. And has made that thing that was not good absolutely blameless and right. This is not a good that you can produce on your own. This is a supernatural goodness produced by the Holy Spirit absolutely outside of your own ability to be good. And that seed makes you blameless and good. This speaks to our restored condition in Christ. Let's talk about where this inherent seed of goodness came from. First thing we'll notice is this seed is found in the garden. It's found in the garden. Now, we're not going to uh, read the entire account of creation, but we've got to understand that good was found everywhere in the garden. Have you ever thought about this before? It was found in the garden because the one who was good took the inherent seed of good, and everything that he touched made it good. And as a matter of fact, there was actually nothing but good before creation, it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit having an incredible unity, having an incredible relationship, sharing the love of God within each other, this unique, mystical, amazing thing called the Trinity, sharing perfect love and unity. And, they, and God wanted to share that love and unity. He wanted to reflect that love. And so he said, hey, son, I got an idea. Why don't we go ahead and create some people like you and I? Why don't we create some beings to reflect our image? And in, in our image, we're, let's go ahead and make some stuff. Let's, let's think about this. And so in, in Genesis, God began to create things. And did you notice that everything he spoke, it was created? And then when he was done creating it, what did he say? It's good. Did you notice that he didn't just call humanity good? He called everything he created Good. He put his inherent seed of good into everything he created. So in other words, when he created the stars, the sky, and the sun, and the light on day one, two, and three, he called it good. In other words, when he separated the heavens from the earth, and he created the galaxies and the cosmos and the things that mankind can't even see, all of the vastness of God and all the vastness of the cosmos, he actually looked at all of that, and he said, that's is good. I put my inherent seed of good in that. And on day four and five, when he created the land and the vegetation and the fish and the water, he put his good in that. And then on day six, he created the animals and he called it good. And then he created man and woman. And he put his seed in good and he sat back and the Bible says that he looked at all that he created and he said, it is very good. You think good was just in you. Good was actually in everything the creator's hand touched. Where did good go? The good disappeared at the fall. The good went away at the fall. We all understand, most of us, what happened at the fall. If you don't, go ahead and read Genesis 2. That man that was created in all of good, there was, there was a lie that came to him by this guy called uh, the, the serpent, the snake. And he came along and he said, hey, I want you to taste this fruit. Because when you taste this fruit, you get to know everything that God knows. Man thought that God was holding out on him. What God didn't want him to know was the other side of good, evil. So as soon as man touched that apple, he became fully aware of evil. And evil actually overtook man. The Bible describes it like this in Romans chapter 5 and 17. For the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. And death entered the world. And that seed of good that was in all of creation, all of a sudden, Death was released into everything. Paul, one of the greatest apostles who ever lived, described his agony of of walking as a fallen man, seeing good over here, and struggling with his flesh, understanding that his flesh was born into this brokenness. And here's what Paul says uh, in in Romans chapter 7. Paul is looking at his fleshly ability, and he's going, there's no good in me. He would say to you, there's no good in your flesh, nothing. And he looks at himself and he says, I recognize what's good, and I know what the right thing to do is, but no matter how hard I try in this thing called my flesh, I, in my own ability, I cannot do it. And how did Paul learn that? How did he know that? By trying to follow the ways of the law. The law only leads to death. The law cannot bring life, because no matter how much he sees the law and sees that the law is good and that would make him good, when he tries to do the law, he cannot do it. So Paul was frustrated, like many of you before you met Christ, like many people who are lost. They see what the right thing to do is. They want to do the right thing, and they cannot do it. Romans 3 and 12 says, "Us all have sinned and turned away. It's because of the fall. They've together become worthless. There is not one who does good, not even one. Where did good go? Well, good was in the garden, and good, some, good in the garden all of a sudden turned to bad, and a corruptible seed went into the world. But the next thing about good is good is found in the word. Good is found in the word. We see in John 1 and 1, the Bible says that in the beginning was the word. Jesus, by the way, is also called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Listen, Jesus took himself as God, stepped onto the scene called planet Earth, where fallenness and brokenness was. He brought the goodness seed that was in him, the inherent seed that was in the garden, and he stepped on the broken earth. And he restored it when he went to the cross, bringing the seed of goodness and making available again to mankind. Doesn't it make perfect sense that the one who touched and created everything is the same one who comes back to restore and produce goodness back into humanity? The Bible says in Romans 10 and 15, how beautiful are the feet are the one who brings what kind of news? Good news, the inherent seed of good. Paul knew what it was like to receive this good news. David knew what it was like to receive the good news. Kind of crazy. Psalm 16, too, says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. David knew that without the Lord there was nothing good in him. Where do we find good? This inherent goodness is found in the garden. It's found in the word. And the inherent goodness is found in the redeemed. When we read Paul's struggle in Romans 7, he's saying, I can't find good. I can't do it. It's not in me. I don't know how to do it no matter how much, no matter how hard I try. In verse 8. Paul, in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul flips the script, and here's what you've got to do. I want you to go back and read Romans 7 and Romans 8, and I don't want you to read it as two different letters, it's one letter. I don't want you to read it as, as two different separate thoughts, I want you to read it as one thought. Here's what it sounds like as one thought, as I try in the flesh... I continue to die as I try to do good in the law. I continue to die. He's speaking to all the people in Galatians. And as you try to do those things, we die. There's nothing good in us, but I found good. And the good person, his name is Jesus. And because of Jesus, we put no confidence in the flesh. And because of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because evil is gone. I am not judged by the law anymore. I am judged by grace, and grace has come and brought the inherent seed of good in me, and now I am good because of God. God not only was good enough to to save me, but his good is good enough to sustain me as good. Verse 9, he turns around and he He tells them, so because of all that, because you are in grace, you don't have to be controlled by the law anymore. You don't have to be controlled by your sinful nature anymore, by the flesh anymore. You are now controlled by the Spirit. Why? Because you have the Spirit of the living God in you, and He produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is good in you. So I can't take any credit for being good, because in fact I know that I'm not good at all. But I know the one who is good, and He's in me. What are we to do with this goodness, church? We're to eat the goodness. We're to eat the goodness. Somebody laughed this week and said, eat? (laughs) Yeah, we're supposed to eat it. The Bible says in Proverbs 13 and 2, for from the fruit of their lips, people enjoy good things. If you want to enjoy the goodness of God, you need to start speaking The goodness of God. You need to start talking like you serve a good God. And when you talk like you serve a good God, and a God who knows how to redeem, a God who knows how to heal, a God who knows how to deliver, a God who knows how to sustain you no matter where you're at in life, you can eat the fruit of your words. It's like serving yourself up a nice, healthy steak. What else should we do with this thing called goodness? We should share it, we should share goodness. There are those who felt just like Paul felt. There are those who are going, I see good. I see what the right thing to do is, but I cannot do it. I am utterly hopeless. Do you remember what that felt like? Those who don't know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they are hopeless. They are frustrated. They are struggling because they see good but they know they cannot do it. But when the beautiful feet come walking across the path of somebody who is lost and does not have a relationship with Christ, they can taste and see that the Lord is good. They will never taste the goodness of the Lord without tasting your fruit. Did you know that fruit is not just for you? Every time I read the fruits of the Spirit, I, I I am so selfish. I think that it's all about me. I think that it's all for me. And it is partly about me, and it is partly for me, but it is not all for me. Did you know the fruits of the Spirit are not to just to make you some pretty little Christian, I mean, gag me, I mean, barf. I just want to just start start hurling over here and just spewing all over the place and how selfish I can be when I think, oh, I'm such a good, kind, perfect, uh, fruity guy over here, and and I'm such a great little Christian. I am from California, and I'm such a great Christian, and, and oh, how nice he is. Oh, he is so loving and caring. Yay, him. Fruit is not just for us. Fruit is so others can taste the goodness of God. The same way creation displayed and radiates the goodness and the majesty of God when his seed of good was put in it, now his seed of good is put back in you, and you display the greatness, the wonder, and the glory of God. We're talking about how the Holy Spirit produces fruit. The next fruit that the Holy Spirit produces is patience. Somebody say patience. 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 Listen, the Bible, the original word for patience is a funky word. I'm not even going to say it, but it means this. It's made of two words. The first word is long, distant, and far. Long, distance and far. The second word is anger, a wrathful anger, a passionate, wrathful anger. Patience means to hold off for a long time, a distant time, and a really far time, your passionate anger. You might say, well, how long, Sean? Well, how long is a little bit of time to God? So just think about it as a long amount of God time, okay? and you just hold off your anger for that long. Anger is not a natural disposition, or excuse me, uh, patience is not a natural disposition of a person. This patience, this God patience, this ability to hold off anger and wrath for a long period of time Is a fruit of the spirit that you cannot do of yourself. It's produced in you. It's for our what? What is this fruit for? It's for our suffering. The Bible says this. It says, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what is promised. I don't know about you, but Abraham and Sarah were walking through infertility. They were suffering. They were sad. They saw a promise that God said, I'm going to do this for you. And then as they tried to see that thing come to fruition, this was, I'm going to make your descendants as as like sands in the seashore. A ton of them, a lot of them, and Abraham and Sarah, they are in agony, agony, month after month after month after month as they try to produce a child. They begin to grieve. They begin to question themselves. Did we really hear God? Is God really good? I, I don't know if a good God would tell me that and I would have to go through all this suffering. And the woman begins to just question herself as a woman because she goes, well, after all, as a woman, one of the things that I should do best is bear, bear kids, have a child. And the guy over here is going, man, one of the best things I have to offer in life is to produce a child out of me. And, and they come together and they are Suffering. Patience is for our suffering so they can hold off their frustration, hold off their anger towards God, hold off their, stop not blaming. Well, it must be your fault. Well, it must be your fault. You should go to to the doctor. You should go to the doctor. I'm not going to the doctor. It's your fault. You're the old one. You're the one. (laughs) Patiently hold off our wrath and anger for a long, long time. James says it like this in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience. Look at what the prophets did in the example of patience. Look at what Job did in his example of being patient and waiting on the Lord. That's what patience produces. Patience is for our suffering. Patience is for our relationships. I don't need to even go into this one. I mean, y'all get it? Patience helps us in relationships to avoid premature uses of force towards one another. Why? Because when we don't get what we want in the flesh, all of a sudden, we start exercising our frustration. And it comes out in the form of things like bullying, manipulation, forcing people to do things they don't want to. And when we apply this kind of force, we are not operating in patience, in long-suffering, in forbearance. We enter the zone of unhealthy relationships. And parenting, marriage, working relationships requires patience. Sticking in it with an employer and with a company and a God dream requires patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this. It says, brothers and sisters, I encourage you all to be patient with everyone. We don't get to choose who we show patience to. In our flesh, we want to choose. I, I know. I know. You deserve patience, you don't. But in the spirit, the spirit produces patience. And we don't get to choose when we exercise patience or not. Why? Because thirdly, patience is for salvation. Patience is for salvation. Did you know that people can't know the patience of God unless they taste the fruit from you? Peter says it like this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slow as He's patient with you, not, anyone to, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. Psalms 145 and 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Aren't you glad he was patient for you when it came to saving you? Aren't you great that he was willing to wait a long, long, long time for you? Aren't you glad that he held off his wrath and his judgment to you? And he was patient for you. Thirdly, we're going to talk about kindness. 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 This word comes from a, another awesome word. And, and here's what it means. It, mean, it means several things. It's like a word picture. It means like sinking into something. And it means, it means a mellowness. It means a slowness. Sinking into a mellow slowness. Kindness. What's kindness for? Kindness is for softening. Kindness is for softening. Ezekiel 11 and 9 says this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone, and I will put in them a heart of flesh. What is that heart of flesh about? Softening. It's about mellowing. It's about an unstiffening of you. It's about loosening you up. It's about making you pliable. Why do you need to be soft and pliable? So that when the Lord tries to direct and guide you, he can direct and guide you. It's for serving. It's for serving. Kindness is for serving. This word not only means to to drown in something or to be totally consumed by something and a softness. It actually means that to be drowned and to be softened for a purpose. What is that purpose? A serving of perfection. A serving of perfection. When somebody is hurt, When somebody is lost, when somebody sees good and they're frustrated they can't have it, kindness comes, the Father comes, and serves them usually what they don't deserve. And it comes and it brings a perfect serving of Christ in a perfect moment, meeting the exact need that that individual has. We see this kindness in, in Ruth chapter two. I don't have time to go through that. We also see this kindness in Jesus as he talks to the woman at the well. Jesus was not a pushover in this conversation. He was kind. Kindness doesn't mean being a pushover. Kindness means being truthful. Kindness means being compelling with a love and meaning a deeper need than the outward thing. It doesn't mean overlooking a wrong. It doesn't mean avoiding a hard conversation. It means having the hard conversation, having the truth there with loving kindness that draws somebody to salvation, just like it did to that woman at the well. Well, he confronted. I'm going to go confront everybody. Okay. Well, don't you go confronting anybody if you can't do it with kindness. If your confrontation doesn't lead someone to salvation, then you better shut your mouth and back off. I feel like I sound like Pastor. <laughs> kindness is for saving. Kindness is for saving. Do you see? Do you see the, the the pattern of all the fruits of the Spirit? Goodness shows the goodness of God. Patience is for repentance and saving. Kindness is for saving. Romans two four. Don't show contempt for the riches of this kindness. Don't get mad when God is showing kindness to those who you think don't deserve it. Don't show contempt. Pharisees, stop showing contempt towards Paul as he shows kindness to all of those Galatians who don't follow your laws and rules. But realize that God's kindness, Paul goes on to say, is intended to lead you to repentance. In, in our takeaway today, the worship team can come up. The fruit reveals the heart of God to the lost. This is not your ability. This is the fruit of the Spirit in you. The fruit of the Spirit reveals the heart of God to the lost. Without the fruit, they cannot taste and see him. I want you to listen to that. Without the fruit of the Spirit hanging on our fruity tree branches, they will never taste and see how good the Lord wants to be to them. They will never taste and see how patient the loving Father is for them. He is so patient and He's so patient, the Bible says that he will not let anyone perish without hearing the good news of Christ. They will never experience and know how kind the heart of the Father is unless they taste the kindness that's produced from you. I was talking to a man at Starbucks as I was preparing for this uh, message this week we were just chatting back and forth and I thought to myself I might get myself in trouble with some of you in here that's fine <clears throat> I want you to understand the things that I'm going to talk about today I think they're good things I, I'm not saying they're bad things I think they're good things and I'm not against any of these things that I'm about to mention but I thought to myself why in the world if the fruit reveals Christ and a lost world who needs to find him, if the answer is me and you, then why, why do we retreat away into our Christian music culture? Why do we retreat away into our Christian coffeehouse culture? Why do we retreat away into our Christian company culture? And we only buy things from Christian companies now. Why do we retreat away into our Christian schools? Why do we retreat away into our Christian sports programs? Why do we sink in to the four walls of our little building that we call church? All in the name of protecting ourselves, protecting our kids. And I, if you, if you have your kids in a Christian school, my daughter was in a Christian school last year. Right? That's, but what I'm saying is why, we, why do we retreat? We are called to be in. The world and not of the world. We are to believe the saving knowledge of Christ and the power of Christ is enough to sustain us and our kids, mom and dad. How in the world are the little kids in my neighborhood ever going to know about Jesus unless they sit across from Ellie in class? I'm scared too. I'm scared about what my daughter might learn in school, I'm scared about the things that she might see. But in that, I rest and I sit back and I lean on the grace of God. And I say, God, you are more powerful. He that is greater, he is greater in me than he that is in the world. And that includes the little toddlers and the the six-year-old child that my daughter sits next to. So guess what? Daddy's going to be the first one to teach her about God. Daddy is going to be the first one to teach her about sexuality. Daddy's going to be the first one to teach her about her potty parts. Daddy is going to be the first one to teach her about sex. Daddy is going to be the first one to teach her about the fruits of the Spirit. Daddy is going to be the first one to reflect God so she knows who God is and she knows what her job is to not retreat in school and go hide during lunches in her Christian club, but to get out of her Christian club and step out so that people can taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we are that's who we are I'm not against those things but what I am against is the church hiding with that would you stand on your feet today and close your eyes today if you are somebody in here and you find yourself like Paul frustrated, seeing good, wanting to do good wanting good in your life and it hasn't been there just don't feel bad none of us have good in our life The only reason that some of us have good in our life now is because the one with the inherent seed of good, God, he came down and he planted it in us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And you can have that too. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and asks for the seed of goodness, I'm throwing that in there, will be saved.